When Moses was standing at the burning bush, how did God introduce himself? The I am. And why did he say that? It's because he was ready to take the message that God was going to redeem his people out of the land of Egypt to a demonic and powerful world that he was sending the light of his truth in. And may we as a church body boldly proclaim the great I am is the one that we scream into the world, this dark world, and we shout it boldly proclaiming the gospel, the gospel that saves, the gospel that opens blind eyes to see the truth of you. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As you're being seated, you can turn to today's passage, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I would like to dismiss the uh, kids through fourth grade. You may head down to your classes if you haven't already left. Today we're going to be talking about the spiritual realm. Uh, the spiritual realm, it's uh, one of the things that's always interesting. Whenever you discuss the spiritual realm, it always seems that there's strange things that seem to happen sometimes. Um, for those of you who may not have been to the 10, 9 o'clock service, we had mic issues. We had mic issues already, things like that. It's amazing when you're about ready to talk about something like this, how things seem to happen. And we know, though, that the power that is within this word has the power to cause blind eyes to see. As the songs we sang, we know that we are on the victor's side. And so what we're going to be talking about today is something that we need to take seriously, something that Paul is going to try to open our eyes to the world that's going on around us. So let's look at today's passage, 2 Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as, as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when, their, when your obedience is complete. So the big idea that we're going to try to break down today is this. That the weapons of our warfare, the warfare that in the spiritual realm is not of the flesh, but of God to destroy strongholds. And to give you a little background of where we're going with this, Paul, when he's dealing with the Corinthian church, over and over and over again, his authority of, do you have the right to tell me what to do, authority, is always being questioned. You're going to have false apostles, false teachers that are going to be coming in, and they're going to be questioning, do we have to listen to Paul? They're even going to be bringing, as he will call it, another gospel. And you're getting this battle of who do we listen to, who do we not listen to. And Paul here is literally going to be defending his ministry. And he starts off by saying, I'd like to be gentle the way I talk to you. And I'd like to show meekness when I'm here with you because I want to walk with you. When I'm away, there's times that I've got to, as we would call it, become bold. The kind of what's wrong with you people kind of statements that Paul's going to make like this Pagan people aren't even doing what you guys are doing, statements. And he's saying here, when we think of boldness, we're also thinking he doesn't have to, as we would say, it, pull out the authority hat and say, you've got to listen to me because I'm the Apostle Paul type of deal. The, 
when I think in my own life, when sometimes I have to pull out the authority hat is when we're dealing with our kids and we're just not getting anywhere and I look at them and go, because daddy said so, all right? That's why you're going to obey and that should be enough, all right? But Paul is saying, I, I would like to walk through this with you in a humble, meek way and there's times for boldness that I need to show. We see this in verse uh, two and, chap- and verse three, but we want to start to see what Paul is really talking about. Why is he struggling with this? There are times where, I'm going to need to really basically pour it on. And he says in verse 2, at the end, as he says, I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So we see here Paul is being accused of literally walking like the Gentiles or the people that do not know God. He's being accused of walking as a pagan or an unbeliever, walking according to the flesh, meaning that he is either compromising in some way or acting as if he is unsaved. And Paul is going to, in many of his other writings, say this is not possible. The reason why this is not possible here is because Paul is going to, in all the other teachings and all throughout the Bible, he's going to clearly tell people that you are a new creature. If you are in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He is going to say, too, that my eyes were blinded to the things of the gospel. Now they are open. There is a new heart has been put in me. Literally, we use the term for someone who is saved to be born again meaning you don't walk as those who are outside of the faith. And when we start thinking about, so if I am saved and I'm supposed to be different, I'm supposed to act different, what does this look like? Uh, One of the great books um, that I would encourage you when you're uh, putting together your library, one of the books that I would say, spiritually speaking, that gives you great um, tools and great little hooks to help you understand the Christian walk is called Pilgrim's Progress. And now I'm going to read a section of this, but to get us getting, because we're going to hop right in the middle. Uh, Pilgrim is a man who's living in the city of destruction. He picks up a book after running into a man called Evangelist. I'll let you decide what Evangelist tells him. But Evangelist shares with him the gospel. And he's reading this book, and the more he reads the book, the, the deeper and the heavier the burden becomes on his back. And the more he reads, the more he realizes the city that he is in is literally called the city of destruction. And so he starts to flee. He starts to run. And as he's leaving town, he runs into a whole slew of problems. There's many times he tries to, in his own way, solve the, how do I get rid of this sin burden on my back? And it's not until he gets to the cross. When he looks up at the cross, immediately the burden loosens itself and it rolls into the empty tomb that's off in the corner. Christian, when he's done at the cross, immediately as he walks down to the foot of the cross, an angel meets him. He's clothed in Christ's righteousness. We see the justification part there. And now Christian is going to start on his journey, and he's on his journey, on his way to the place called the Celestial City. And on his way there, he meets a man called Faithful. And Faithful and Christian are walking shoulder to shoulder down this path. But as John Bunyan writes, they're going to have to go through a city called Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is a, um, basically in our terminology today, would be like the gluttony of the world that we live in. All of the, I guess you could call it like the Walworth County Fair if you're on a diet type of deal. Um, All of the food, all of the stuff that's there, all of these things for people to be involved in. And so John Bunyan is going to uh, describe what happens to faithful and, and Christian or pilgrim as he goes through. As I said this, these pilgrims had to go through this fair. Well, so they did. But even as they entered into it, All the people in the fair were moved, and the town itself was in a hubbub about them. It was for several reasons. First, Pilgrim 
<clears throat> these pilgrims were dressed in a kind of clothing that was different from the clothes of those who traded in the fair. The people of fair therefore stared at them a great deal. Some said they were fools, some said they were lunatics, others said they were freaks. Second, as they wondered at their apparel, so likewise they wondered at their speech. For few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. But those who kept the fair were men of this world. So from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed to those in the fair as being barbarians. Third, and that which greatly amazed the merchandisers, these pilgrims held their wares so unimportant. They did not care to even look at them. And if they called out to buy them, they would look upward, signifying their trade and business was in heaven. They put their fingers in their ears and cried, Turn my eyes away from worthless things. One individual, seeing how the men conducted themselves, mockingly risked to say to them, What do you intend to buy? They looked at him seriously and said, We buy the truth. And the story goes on. Faithful is actually... Uh, ends up being martyred because these people, these Christians were so different than everybody else, they didn't know what to do with them. Now, what's interesting here, this verse, I mean, this um, story here really brings out James 4.4. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of Christ. This is a you cannot serve two masters. When Christian and faithful were walking through Vanity Fair there, their clothing, Christ's righteousness, was immediately stuck out. Their speech stuck out. And how they spent their money and how they viewed what the world had immediately stuck out. Now, if you grew up anything like I did... I grew up in Pennsylvania where we were very close to Lancaster County. So when I think of sticking out in the world, I immediately think of Amish people. All right? And for some reason, the Amish have decided that like the 1800s were perfection and we're just going to stay there. And so in the Christian world, we go, all right, so I read what John Bunyan says. I see that I need to be enemy of the world. So we respond in a couple ways. We run to almost the Amish living. So as long as whatever the world's doing, I just do the complete opposite. Or another way we do this is we just delay ourselves from the world about 20, maybe 30 years, and we think that somehow now that's being different from the world. And those are our two knee-jerk reactions. Because we seem to either, we seem to be reacting instead of what the Bible has actually called us to do. And I want to try to talk about what Paul is saying here is the real battle. What's really going on behind the scenes here? Verse 4 Uh, Paul is going to help us understand this, but we see the flow going. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This divine power, by the way, is Christ. When you're looking at what is this power that destroys strongholds, it's Christ, it's the gospel, which is Christ. Either way you want to look at that, um, it's still Christ. It's still what he did. To make sure we understand this, Christ, when he became flesh and dwelt among us and he walked on this sod, we, if we want to call it, when was the weakest moment? When the second part of the Trinity was at his weakest moment, if you want to call it weakest moment, it was when he was veiled in human flesh, when he was like us. But Mark one twenty seven is very clear. 
when he was down here on earth, as you look at the end, as the people were questioning, going, who is this guy? What's this new teaching? He seems to be teaching with authority, like he is the final say on the opinion. Imagine Godwin speaking. He, he spoke with authority. And notice what they said. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. So if Christ at his weakest moment literally told the demonic forces, you're done, get out, go, and tr- they literally had to obey, what is it now when he is throne on high? And we'll read verses that Paul is going to say what literally happened on the cross. In um, homeschool, we have this uh, book that talks about uh, hymn of the week, and uh, we've been going through certain different hymns, and the hymn of this week was Onward Christian Soldiers. And uh, verse uh, 2, um, uh, growing up in the church, we always sang 1 and 4. I don't know why 2 and 3 never made it, but um, verse 2 is very important as well. It's almost like if you don't know what to do, skip, you know, skip the middle verses and we'll be okay. But verse 2 says this, at the sound of trump, at the sound of trumpet, Satan host doth flee. On then Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices loud, your anthems raise. Do we truly understand that? That at the shout of praise, Satan flees because he is a defeated foe. He understands, I'm not winning this battle. Yet we live our lives many times as if we are on the losing side instead of on the winning side. We cower in the darkness, we get scared, and we go, of what? This is why Paul writes this, listen, we have the power, the divine power, not just to destroy small little outposts, but strongholds, areas where you would normally look at this and go, there's no way we're winning this battle. He's saying the strongholds we have the power to destroy. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, Paul is starting to pull back the veil here. Speaking about these people that were accusing him, for such men, he's speaking, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. He's saying what's really going on behind the scenes here is the demonic forces that are shaping and molding really what's happening. When, when what we see is each other, but we don't see that. This here is what Martin Luther is trying to pen as he was battling um, in, his, uh, in many of his writings. If you ever want to read some interesting things, Martin Luther will say there were times where he felt Satan's presence so clearly in front of him that we would throw things in that direction. If anyone had the power of hell after him, it would have been a guy like Martin Luther. But Martin Luther penned in his wonderful hymn talking about a mighty fortress is our God in this battle. He says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him because his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell. And so then he continues to keep writing, dost ask who that may be? The answer is Christ Jesus, it is he. And he answers the question, he goes, what destroys this? What lays them bare? Colossians 2.15, speaking about the cross, says, he disarmed the rulers in authority and literally put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Do we understand, do we truly understand that there is no power on this earth that we are to fear. The Bible says, who do we fear and fear alone is God himself. We have no fear. 
And so as we keep seeing here in verse 5, Paul is going to say, so how does this work? How does this play out? How do we destroy strongholds? We destroy strongholds with every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Uh, this idea of how do we destroy, how do we fight the battles by we take every thought captive. Colossians 4, 5 speaks to us in this way when it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So when we're running in with people that are on the outside, this was those who are not in the, the family of faith, those who are on the outside, there's a wise way we need to walk with them, making the best use of our time. So when I have time with outsiders, those who are outside of the faith, I need to walk wisely with them. The NIV says in Ephesians 2, it says, taking captive every opportunity. Other translations say, redeeming the times for the days are evil. This is this process of we have to take every thought captive, every opportunity captive, because we have the victory. John is going to be writing this in his first um, epistle, John uh, 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not run in fear of the works of the devil, but to destroy them. And we get to 1 John 4.4, 4, and he speaks again. He says, My little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Those of us who are, have been saved by Christ, we have nothing to fear. So what can they do to me? What's the worst that could happen on this world? I get promoted to glory. So I don't even have to fear death. We can look at death and say, you are not the end. You're not even the beginning of the end. All you are is the key that unlocks the door to endless praise. And we sit here and we go, this veiled flesh sometimes we hang on to. So, so strongly, when, instead of seeing, getting our eyes fixed on, on heaven. And as I was reading Pilgrim's Progress, and I've read it now at least four or five times, I go, does my speech and the way I talk betray me as a follower of Christ? Do I speak in a way as if I'm defeated? Because I grew up in a very... Interesting Pennsylvania culture where none of the teams that we ever cheered for won anything, so we always spoke as if we were going to lose. We watched games as if we were waiting for the team to lose. You'd be ahead and you're like, it's only a matter of time. There's still time left on the clock, all right? But do we sit around as Christians and live like that? Because it is amazing to me where blatant demonic influence happens of the world and Christians seem to go, oh well. Yeah, it's going to get bad anyway. Or do we actively go? So the so what that I want to break down for us for a while is the so what is, am I taking every opportunity captive? Am I realizing that I'm on the side that has won? And am I taking these things captive to destroy the works of the devil? Now, I'd like to take a moment here, and the best I can is I'd like to have a little family moment. One of those moments where we go, all right, God's word has spoken, so now let's try to get as, as applying this as much as we can to the nitty-gritty of life. And so to try to do that, I'm going to, try to, I'm just going to kind of relax here for a moment if everything works out well. And I want to have a, just a conversation here about what's going on in our world. Now, 
I want you to try to imagine we're just sitting around the Tim Yorgi table, and we're just going to just discuss some things. Now, if, if we were sitting as my children, I would first say to them, I need to tell you something happened last night that it was historical and that may never happen again the rest of your life or maybe your grandchildren's lives, <laughs> all right? That the Cubs actually made it to the World Series. <laughs> And so we're just, we will take a moment there and we just say, just remember that day because it may never happen again. And if they win, just remember, take pictures of where you were that day and just, just have a moment there of going because your grandparents don't even know what it's like if the Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> Many of their grandparents didn't even know what it was like. And so no one knows, so no one even knows. And then we would, to make it a little bit redeeming, we would say, and it's going to be interesting, if they win, they'll be so excited that they're from Chicago, that they'll burn the city. All right, that's what people do. And after we got through that, we would start then having our normal conversation. So our normal conversation would be something like this. Um, when I taught at Faith, on the wall, there was this um, plaque or framed picture, and it said, you always do what you believe. All right, and as the dean of students, I, was, I got to talk to a lot of people about this, and this was the acronym it had on, that the, the order... And it says, your beliefs shape your values, your values shape your thoughts, and your thoughts shape your actions. And so, I would sit there and say to them, you cheated on that test because you didn't believe or trust that God was going to help you know what you studied. You felt, I needed to help myself, and I needed to cheat by looking somewhere else because I'm the... One, I'm not going to accept responsibility, and I try to say, here's all you're believing because this is what your actions are proving. Or if you cheat on your taxes, what you're saying, God doesn't provide for me, I provide for myself by cheating. And you could just fill it in with any other sin, struggle, or whatever, because you always do what you believe. And so we started going through this, so if I believe we are on the winning side, how does that shape my actions when it comes to the spiritual realm? Because here's what's coming up, unless you live in a hole somewhere, um, Halloween's coming up, all right? And as a church, growing up in the church, I watched three reactions to Halloween that would take place in the church. The first one's with naive world. The people that would just ignore anything happening. They would just, the kind of, they would whistle their merry way, just ignoring anything that's going on in the world. Well, we are not called to be naive. We are called to be people that understand, their understand the times and know how to act. That's why in the bulletin you'll see a pumpkin-looking color, orange, whatever you want to call it, thing that helps you with your naivety if you are, saying this is not an acceptable response. The other response is the retreat response. And the retreat response kind of gets played out like this, and I just want to kind of show you kind of the way we, we have an tendency as a church to do things. So we would be, as a family, one time sitting around after family devotions, we would pray something like this. So, dearly Father, help us to be a light to our neighbors. Give us an opportunity to interact with them, to share the gospel. Amen. And three days, four days, four weeks go by, and we're sitting there one night eating supper, and all of a sudden, oh, it's Halloween tonight. Great. Hey, quick, turn off the lights. Everybody down in the basement. They'll not know we're here. We're just going to ignore this. Everybody downstairs, quick. And then after that evening's over, our next family devotion is, Dearly Father, give us an opportunity to talk to our neighbors. Send them over somehow. And he goes, I just did. 
all right? And we look at this and go, so wait a minute, how do we do this? Or the church responds in the assimilation world. The assimilation world is we just do everything they do because we don't want to stick out. And then when we have an opportunity to share the gospel with them, we say, the gospel has changed my life completely. And they look at you and go, but you haven't done anything different than us. You do everything the same way. So how does it change your life at all? And then we're like, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. And so assimilation is not the answer. And so the church has literally wrestled with this for a long, long time. And I would argue it's not like I'm trying to tell you something new, all right? So this is not like this is going to be the next thing we're going to talk about is something that you go, oh, I've never thought about that one. But it's we don't think about it because it's, we, we are just so quick to respond in our knee-jerk reactions to things. The, sec, the fourth one is what it, would it look like if we went on the offensive? All right, and because now there have been churches that have tried this, but here's the thing. Each one of you has been sovereignly placed by God in the neighborhood that you live in. There is no mistake. God is sovereign. So you are living exactly where God wants you to live with the neighbors that you're living by. And here's what happens. There is a day in our culture that if you want to say is a stronghold day, it would be the day of Halloween, a demonic stronghold day. It doesn't take, you don't even have to walk down the Walmart aisle three steps to realize that they're celebrating death, not life, all right, in the costumes. It's not that hard to figure that out. But this day, your neighborhood, if you live in a neighborhood, starts, people leave their homes and they walk down the streets. And what is our response? Do we say, we have nothing to fear this day? Because in the story here, when Pilgrim runs into Apollyon, Pilgrim is thinking, should I run? Should I run in fear when I see Apollyon until he remembers real quick, if I turn, there is nothing in the Christian armor for your back. And he realizes, I can't turn and retreat. Our armor is offensive armor, not defensive armor. All right, and so these things are bouncing around in my head as I was reading this blog about three years ago. I was reading this blog. What does it look like to go on the offensive? If we truly believe that we are on the winning side, why is it on Halloween we run in fear? And so I went home and I said to Allison, all right, let's t- I don't know what this looks like, but we're going to try something. Instead of being reactive, let's be offensive. And so, I, so our little brainstorming around the, the, the Yorgi table was, all right, so how do we get a chance to share the gospel with them? Well, we got to get them to stay a little bit longer than 30 seconds. So we were like, well, I was like, well, let's put the grill out in the driveway. Maybe we'll do some hot cider and hot dogs and see if we can just strike up a conversation with someone as they come over, because they're coming over. And so the first year, we went to Aldi's, because you know we don't want to spend too much on our neighbors. We went to Aldi's, <laughs> and we got food. We had it all set up. We're ready to go. We've been praying over this, and literally, it was, let's say the trick-or-treat time was 5 o'clock, 4.30, the wind that divided the Red Sea went through Williams Bay and knocked down a tree on the power line three houses down from us. The police show up, blocked the sidewalk off on that end, blocked the sidewalk off on that end, and we were hedged in behind and before, and our, the hand was laid upon us, and no one was even allowed to walk down our street. All right, so get, that night we sat there and went, 
well, kids, I guess you're going to be eating a lot of hot dogs. And I got some wood out of it, which is exciting too, but that was an utter failure. All right, so then we're going, all right, Lord, we, we need to, how do we become offensive in this idea? So we're like, let's, we try it again. So then last year we tried it again, and it was one of those nights where it was incredibly cold and windy. So everybody was like, drive down the road, open the car door, kids run to the house, run back, and go down to the next place. All right, and so we're going, that didn't work. And so this year we're trying to go, so here's the battlefront, because here's what we have to think about. Where you live is different than where I live. All right, 440 West Geneva Street is different than where you live because I know none of you live with me, all right? And so all up and down my street, we have widowed people or single people, very few children. So what happens, the back neighborhood behind us becomes alive with, as John Bunyan says, hubbub. And that whole hubbub then somewhat filters over to us, but it's like the stragglers, the ones that look like they've just been through the war, you know, they're, and they're just like, and so we're going, all right, so maybe we put out chairs to have them sit down, we can talk to them. And just say, we're here to talk to you. Because our goal is, through this, is to build relationships with people. To start to find ways to speak the gospel truth into them. Because we don't know this year's what's going to work, if it's going to work, if it's not. We may have another tree fall down and just go, well, that's not working. I have to go, all right, let's start back from scratch again. What does it look like to be offensive? But there's three principles we're trying to apply. And there's three principles I want you to try to apply as well. The first one is... Let's dress up for real in this day. Put on Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, gratifying desires. Dress up for real. Put on Christ and understand, I have nothing to fear about this day. The second, what we need to do is we understand we take the shield of faith, just like Christian did against Apollyon. Notice what it says in the verse, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Not just deflect. It literally says the shield of faith distinguishes it stops them and puts them out. And then we get to the third. The third part, too, is we need to understand we go into enemy territory and we are winning. Matthew 16, 18 says, when he's talking to Peter, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail, meaning we go into enemy territory. We can go to Nepal, we can go to India, we can go into the world of Halloween and say, we win. All right? But yet what happens, we're so quick then to go, wait a minute, if I enter into that, I may become soiled by them. What was Jesus accused of multiple times, though? Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. But I want to be clear, though, because I'm not preaching we just hang out with them and nothing happens. When Jesus left, they were changed. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, I accept your sin. He said, I accept you as an individual. I understand that, but you're going to change. There's a fine line between that that sometimes we get confused and so what, we're, what, what I'm praying that we can start learning to do as a church body is we take every opportunity captive. What would it look like? Instead of us running in fear, instead of us just going, I hope it goes away, say, let's take Halloween captive. Let's turn the tables on this day and start sharing the gospel, building relationships because, so here's what we have. In the, in the normal setting, you have a family maybe of children coming up and you interact with them in some way. At Calvary here in December, we have a um, gingerbread con time where people can come and make gingerbread. How about inviting anybody that stops your house to that? Hey, we have, you like, to, I, obviously you like doing things as a family. We have, at the church I attend, we have, a, and we invite people to that. And guess what? While they're there, you say, hey, 
if you're not doing anything for Christmas Eve, how about you come here? And we then, on a day that Satan is going, I'm getting everybody out, we went, all right, if you're getting them out, we're going out too, and we're going to shed the gospel, and we're going to bring the gospel to them. Because it's interesting, so many times we run in fear instead of being aggressive. So the, the part that I, the, the line that I want to end with is this. I want us to look, I want us to see, can we begin to see this evening of Halloween as an opportunity to cultivate relationships with the unbelieving? as a part of an ongoing process. And so what we're trying to do is this, this ongoing process at the Tim Yorgi house that we're trying to flesh us out, and so far it has kind of failed the last two years. And we're going, and you know what? This year may fail too, but it doesn't change the fact that we need to be offensive. And so we have little pep talks with each other afterwards. Well, that was a failure. What are we going to do next? All right, and you know what? It's okay if things fail because we learn what didn't work. <laughs> All right, it's one of those where, what did Thomas Edison say when he was making the light bulb? I found a whole slew of things that don't work. All right, it's that same concept too because the ongoing thing we'd like to do, for some reason on our street, people really like to get together for the 4th of July. All right, so you come over here, we make sure we remember your name, we invite you to a 4th of July thing and we start rubbing shoulders with each other and we start learning how to live life with each other. So do we take opportunities like this to cultivate relationship with unbelieving as part of an ongoing process in which we plainly, plainly, notice as we plainly identify with Jesus, getting to know them well, and then personally speaking the good news of our Savior into their lives. This is, doesn't stop because a lot of times we stop at personally getting to know them well. And then we never do the other part, speaking the truth into their lives. So how about this Halloween? We learn how to go on the offensive and you take where you live and you start taking these principles. What does it look like where I live? Some of you may be sitting here. So if you're going, all right, but I just, I, something within me, I just can't be part of this in this way. All right, here's, here, I'll give you an, an answer. Get out of your house, walk out to the front and start walking around. And as your neighbors are start walking around, interact with them, talk with them. Hey, I see you guys walking up and down the street. Hi, how you doing? Remember me? All right, and guess what? You're starting to build relationships. You're starting to build a community where you will then be someone, hey, they care enough about me to talk to me. And guess what starts to happen there? You go, that is just the start of a greater plan I have for you because my friendship is wonderful, but the friendship of God is far greater. He will never let you down. Yet, we have an opportunity. And so, as a church body, may we take this time and look and go, how do I redeem a day that seems to be a stronghold. So dearly Father, give us wisdom. It said, help us to walk wisely with the outsiders, redeeming the time. We don't know when you're going to return. We don't know how many more Halloweens we have left. Help us not to run as those who fear. Help us to be like Christians and say, I, ha I can't retreat. My weapons and my armor are for offensive action. And as we go out, May the lines be going through our minds. Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. And nothing formed against us shall stand. And may we truly live in light of that. In your name we pray, amen. 1555, on a day that we celebrate death, may we literally look at Halloween in the face and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.